Well, good morning. good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. As we watch the growth and the joy continue to blossom at HHBC, I want to extend sincere thanks to all of those who are continually laboring in the background of Harrison Hills, making our gathering this morning possible. It's one of the beauties of the body of Christ working as one. There are so many in this congregation who do so much that you will never see. The floors are swept, the toilets are clean, the windows are washed, our taxes are done, our finances steward, administration, posting and editing sermons on Facebook and sermon audio, snowing a parking lot, filling the baptismal, cooking food, printing out flyers, decorating the church, bringing musical talent, teaching our children, serving in adult Sunday school, making slides. I could go on and on. And we may not be a large congregation, but that just makes the individual contributions shine that much brighter because we don't labor just for each other. We do all of this as unto the Lord and not unto man. So if you're struggling with where you can plug in to serve the body, watch for a need and fill it. God will do the rest. In fact, if you have a particular need in your life, go fill that exact need for someone else and watch God fill you up with what you just gave away. That's God's economy in our lives. If you're feeling down and need some encouragement, go encourage someone and watch what happens. You walk away encouraged. That's God's economy. Now, as Harrison Hills continues to grow and reach out to our community, who's more in need of the church being the church more than any other time in recent memory, the opportunities to serve are going to be overflowing. There's a reason you're in this body. You have a function and a purpose that we cannot survive without. That's, God, that's by God's design. That's God's economy. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, we're so very encouraged to be continuing in part two of our three-part series titled The Great Trilemma, Delusional, Demonic, or Divine. As a reminder, we'll break in the series next week for Resurrection Sunday for Easter and finish our final installment the following Sunday. Well, last week we happened upon a man, a scholar, an apologist who needed very little introduction, that being the famed author C.S. Lewis. He, of course, coined the phrase, the great trilemma. After being converted as a younger man, he was immediately confronted by a logical fallacy of sorts that flew in the face of a prevailing view concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Primarily that Jesus was a great teacher. One that was to be revered and admired. Not God, but along with Buddha and Confucius, he had many wise, to things, wise things to say. Love your neighbor. Who could argue with that, right? But this causes a serious problem if one reads the scriptures. Jesus was a man who claimed in every way imaginable to be God. To assign divinity to himself. All the way up to saying, I am. Causing the high priest to rent and tear their clothes. There was no gray area in his claim of divinity. Thus, if Jesus was not divine, he must by pure logic be delusional or demonic. Or to coin Josh McDowell's popularized phrase, Jesus must be a liar or a lunatic if he was not Lord. We're not left with another, with another option. Hence the trilemma for the unbelieving heart. They have a real problem on their hands. Jesus being an admirable teacher or a wise sage is not an option. We must either dismiss him as crazy as we would anyone else standing on the corner claiming to be God, or we must label him a con man and a liar. Or as C.S. Lewis says, we must fall down at his feet as Lord and God. 
These are the options that we're examining. And last week we looked to the claim that Jesus was delusional. That was the claim by his own family. I think many of us can relate. They thought Jesus was going to self-destruct if they did not intercede and get him back home to Nazareth. But if we look to every word spoken by Jesus, recorded in the four Gospels up to this point, are these the words of a deluded man? Are these the ramblings of a madman? No honest reading could come to this conclusion. If one had no preconceived notions of who Christ was, no exposure to Scripture, who would read our accounts to this point and claim that these were the ramblings of a lunatic? To say that he was sober and articulate would be an understatement. His questioning of the most learned men in all of Israel that left them stumped and fuming, no madman can do that. Can delusion cut to the heart and leave the religious leaders with nothing to say? No, the charge of delusion or insanity would not stand the test of any court of law under any standard of evidence the most ardent atheist if they were willing to be honest must concede that jesus was not delusional they may hate with every fiber in their being what he has to say but he's not crazy you don't crucify the insane do you you crucify blasphemers and criminals and that was the accusation and so they did leaving us with our trilemma Recall that our series is comprised of what's known as a Markin sandwich. Remember that? Last week was the first piece of bread, and today is the meat. Last week, the accusation was that Jesus was delusional, and today the accusation is going to be that he is demonic, that he's a deceiver. And we'll see the introduction of a much-debated topic, that of the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. Well, this section is meaty, with no pun intended. We have so much to see here. So with that, let's dive into our text Mark three twenty two through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to to stand and if satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but he is finished but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house truly i say to you all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are deep texts. These are challenging. But we know that your sheep hear your voice. Give us ears to hear what you are saying and give us wisdom to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as promised, we said no more Pharisees or scribes for 16 verses back in verse 6. And we've kept that promise, but indeed they are back. And they're back with a brand new way, with a brand new vengeance for a brand new event. So let's jump right into the deep end this morning, beginning with verse 22. Mark three twenty-two. 
and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Stop there. We have a mound of treasure buried in there that we need to mine. So first recall the distance traveled we're talking about here. About 100 miles, right? Jerusalem to Capernaum. Have you ever walked 100 miles? I haven't. Something has these scribes in quite a fuss. And the only thing that's going to bring down scribes or Pharisees, not local ones. Remember, there were local scribes as well. Know from the mothership, from Jerusalem, is if the Sanhedrin had issued an edict or a finding. And we're going to have to look at the inner workings of the Pharisees to grasp what is really going on here, to tie this together. Saints, today is a day we're going to need to be good expository listeners. I told my dear wife that I was concerned that this message might be a lot to digest. And in her quick wit, she said, just tell them to chew faster. So there you go. No excuses. I guess we just chew faster. We're going to have to look at Luke's and Matthew's account of this same event or the surrounding events to fill in the missing pieces. Because Mark, as you know, he writes very truncated, very abrupt, very short in his writing style. So first, let's look to Luke. There's no need to turn there. We'll put it on the slide. Luke 5, 17. And it came to pass on one of those days that he was teaching and there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by who were come out of every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Well, first, let me give you the chronology of where Luke 5 sits, okay? This would be the equivalent of being towards the end of Mark 1, okay? Just so you can draw that parallel in your mind. So what at this point in Luke, which would be the equivalent, remember, of the end of Mark 1, has summoned the scribes, the Pharisees, and the doctors of the law from everywhere, including Jerusalem, Well, think back to Mark 1. What is already causing a mass gathering of authority figures in Capernaum already coming in from Jerusalem? Well, Mark doesn't show us this, but what happened? Here's where we need to understand the background. And saints, if you get a hold of this, you're never going to read these events the same way again. Back in ancient times, miracles were classed by rabbis into two categories. What we would call normal miracles, if there was such a thing, Basically, miracles that someone could perform if God be with them. And we see these throughout the Old Testament. But there was a whole second category of miracle, and you won't hear about this in many places. This is called, they are called the Messianic miracles. This was a special category of miracle that only the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, would be able to perform. There was only three. And burn these into your memory because it helps explain so much. The first messianic miracle would be if this man healed a leper. Dr. Arnold Frautenbaum, he's a messianic Jewish scholar. He's done extensive work on this topic, if you wish to read more. But he writes, quote, From the time the Mosaic law was completed, there was no record of any Jew who had been healed of leprosy. While Miriam was healed of leprosy, this was before the completion of the law. Naaman was healed of leprosy, but he was a Syrian Gentile, not a Jew. From the time the Mosaic law was completed, there was never a case of any Jew being healed of leprosy. Saints, there was no cure for leprosy. None. So why in Leviticus 13 and 14 do we see a lengthy, detailed, priestly, Levitical process for someone to be made ceremonially clean after being cured 
from leprosy. There was no cure. So why do we have this? The priests never had cause to use this. This was a messianic miracle. There had never been an instance of a leper being healed. So it was widely taught as doctrine and dogma that the healing of a leper could only be done by Messiah. Saints, what happened in Mark 1, 40 through 44? I'll read Mark 1, 40, 40 through 44. And a leper came to Jesus pleading with him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them what testimony that messiah is here not just in general performing general miracles no messianic miracle a leper cleansed this would have sent shockwaves through the temple in jerusalem this would have been one very dusty scroll that they had to grab off the shelf and the the pharisees and the scribes would have been on this like white on rice and so we see them in Luke 5. Why are they coming to Capernaum? Why? Understand the process. Someone who has performed a messianic miracle, what's the first order of business? Well, for the next week, these leaders would intensively investigate the claims and they would, and they would uncover a few key findings. First, this man really was a leper. Second, that the man was perfectly healed of his disease. And finally, Jesus in Capernaum was the one who did it. Well, Dr. Falkenbaum, he writes again, quote, because they taught that the healing of a leper was a messianic miracle, anyone healing a leper would by that very act be claiming to be the Messiah himself. Jesus deliberately sent this cleansed leper to the priesthood in order to get the leaders to start investigating his messianic claims and to come to a decision regarding those messianic claims. But there's a process for that. Remember, looking for Messiah for these guys. Saints, understand this. It was not some far off, symbolic, theoretical thing for the Jews. This was active. They were looking for him. They lived under this Roman oppression and they wanted to be free. So they had a process in place to investigate any of these claims. If someone performed a messianic miracle, it most certainly would have triggered this response. According to Sanhedrin law, if there was any kind of messianic movement, the Sanhedrin had to investigate the situation in two stages. And the first was called the stage of observation. A delegation was formed to investigate only by way of observation. They had to observe what was being said, what was being done, what was being taught. They were not permitted to ask any questions or raise any objections at this point. Now, after a period of observations, they would return to Jerusalem and they would report back to the Sanhedrin for a verdict. Was the movement significant or not? If the movement was decreed to be insignificant, they would drop the matter. But if the movement was declared to be significant, there would then be a second stage of investigation called the stage of interrogation. 
And in this stage, they would interrogate the individuals, the members of the movement. This time, they would ask questions. And they would raise objections to discover whether the claims should be accepted or rejected. Well, this incident in Luke 5.17 records the first stage, the stage of observation. They were there to observe what Jesus was saying and doing. And at this point, they were not allowed to ask questions or objections. Do you remember the Gospels talking about the Pharisees what? reasoning within themselves reasoning within their own hearts no talking no objecting observe only so because a messianic miracle had been performed all the leaders from all over the country had come to capernaum to participate in this stage of observation that's what we see in luke 5 that's why we saw in the story of the paralytic remember being let down through the roof to jesus feet who was sitting there observing in the front row? The Pharisees. Phase one. And what did they witness in phase one? Jesus claiming to forgive this man's sin and made him walk right in front of them. Hello. Back to Jerusalem we go with our findings of phase one. This movement is significant. He's claiming to forgive men's sins and he made a lame man walk right in front of our eyes that would trigger phase two interrogation phase once this was instituted jesus would not have been able to buy a fish at the market without having a pharisee watching they would have been assigned to jesus full time but it gets even better we have to get this if the pharisees response in our primary text today is going to make any sense to us we've got to grasp this we said there were three messianic miracles first was the healing of an incurable leper check we got that second messianic miracle was the casting out of a dumb or a mute demon well casting out demons in the traditional way was actually pretty common in this day rabbis and pharisees they used a framework within judaism that allowed them to do this so if a judaic exorcist would go into someone like this they would speak with this demon who uses the human vocal cords, and they would ask the demon their name. Now remember, Jesus also used this methodology sometimes as well. Think about Jesus' interaction with Legion, right? Jesus asked, what is your name? We are Legion, for we are many. So this was a fairly common practice. However, as Frochtenbaum notes, there was one kind of demon against which Judaism's methodology was powerless, and that was the kind of demon who caused the controlled person to be dumb, or mute is because they could not speak there was no way of establishing communication with this kind of demon there was no way of finding out this demon's name so within the framework of judaism it was impossible to cast out a dumb demon the rabbis had taught however that when messiah came he would be able to cast out this kind of demon this was the second of the three messianic miracles the casting out of a dumb demon and lo and behold get ready for another earthquake saints the equivalent passage for where we're at in mark today mark chapter 3 the same fuller scene we get we find in matthew 12 22 through 24 no need to turn there we'll put it on the screen but listen to this then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed 
Why would they be so amazed? Rabbis did this stuff. Pharisees did this stuff. But they were amazed at this. And what did they say? Can this be the son of David? This was special. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So there you see us joining up with our text, right? In Mark chapter 3. We have a real problem here. Jesus has just done the second messianic miracle by our own teaching and standard. You have a choice. Fall at his feet as the Messiah or tell the masses that he's the one or reject his claims. But if you do that now, now you need to explain how he is able to do all these things. Well, they chose the latter. They're going to reject him. Why? He did the miracles for all to see. And he did specifically these miracles for all to see. Why reject this? Jesus wasn't playing ball. Jesus did not subscribe to their derelict and their apostate Judaism. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You're of your father, the devil. And to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as Messiah at this point, would have been to acknowledge themselves as apostate frauds. But we can't deny that he's done these things. We're in a bind. We have to explain this. So they make an accusation. They make an accusation. And the problem with this accusation that we're about to see here, though, is that it's completely illogical. And sin is illogical. Sin is never logical. Logic is a God-made reality. He owns it. If you're going to sin, you're going to have to pervert logic to do it. And so they do. Back to our text, Mark 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... He is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. First accusation is he's possessed by Beelzebul. Okay, well, let's roll with that. Jesus is himself demonic. He is possessed not just by a demon, but by Beelzebul, which translate Baal Baal the prince, later referred to as the Lord of the flies. This was the name for Satan himself. So Jesus is actually indwelled, possessed by Satan himself. That's accusation number one. Accusation number two. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. This is the explanation they're going with. And really, what choice do they have? He's performed two out of the three messianic miracles. Only two choices. There's only two power structures in the world. God's and Satan's. We can't say it's God's because that makes us wicked. So here we are. Jesus' response is beautifully simple. This is called kind of a parable of sorts that that he responds with, but not in the traditional sense. Because as we know, the purpose of a parable was often to conceal the meaning of a matter. But in this instance, Jesus speaks very plainly for all to see and understand. I'll read Jesus' response to them as as one verse in 23 through 27. And as you listen to Jesus' response here, I want you to consider the logic. This also speaks to the first part of our trilemma from last week, that this man is delusional, that he's a lunatic. Ask yourself if these are the words of a madman. Ask yourself if these are the words of someone possessed by Satan himself. Starting at verse 23. And he called them to himself. And began speaking to them in parables, 
How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Well, most people, when they hear about a house being divided against itself, they think of then candidate Abraham Lincoln's speech, don't they, in 1858. Well, this was not Lincoln's first. This was first Jesus. He's pointing out the utter contradiction of the Pharisees here. It quite literally makes no sense. If Satan is casting himself out, his kingdom is being destroyed as we speak. Think about that for a second, saints. Let's say that what the Pharisees were saying was true. Let's say it was true. Well, then the Pharisees should be rejoicing. Because if Jesus was casting out Satan by the power of Satan, because that means he's turning, that means that he's turning in on himself and being destroyed. That's what logic would show. You think I'm casting out Satan by Satan. Well, that's very good. That's a very good day for you then. Because if that's true, his kingdom is coming crashing down. But Jesus goes on. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. If you want to commit violence in a home, if you want to steal from a home, you had better be stronger than the strongest man in that home or it's not happening, right? That's simple logic, isn't it? The strong man here is Satan. And his property are not only the demons under his behest and control, but also those that he's enslaved in sin and that are possessed by his evil. Jesus says, I can heal these people and I can cast out these demons, not because I'm in cahoots with Satan, which is utterly illogical. I can do it because I'm greater than the strong man. I'm greater than Satan and his imps and his minions. Don't miss the overt claim of deity here. In verse 27, we see now a pure, simple, plainly spoken logic to this insane charge. But this reflects what sin does to the thought process, saints. Remember, it was not just our physical bodies that died and fell when Adam, our federal head, sinned. Our ability to think and reason was also fallen and corrupted as well. It's called the noetic effects of the fall. How many of us that have children or grown children when they when they're in sin and you, you look at a decision that they made and you ask yourself, what were they thinking? That doesn't even make any sense. That's illogical. That's against their best interests. Yes, logic is God's. It's his creation. Sin is illogical. It works to destroy the host. The, they, to work against your best interest. That's what sin does. So even if something seems eminently logical, if it is wrought in sin or infected by sin, you will find a poison pill of illogic in there somewhere if you dig. It may be small, but it's there. It's twisted. And contrary to the charge leveled here by the Pharisees, we know that Jesus, he spent the bulk of his public ministry banishing demons and destroying the works of the devil. In fact, Scripture tells us that is exactly why Jesus came. 
Yes, he did many things and he taught many things. But the reason the explicitly stated purpose that Jesus came, 1 John 3, 8, the son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. If Satan is casting out Satan, then you shouldn't be accusing me. You should be rejoicing because that kingdom is disintegrating in front of you. If that's true. Instead, out of pride and sin and a darkened and a hardened heart, the Pharisees look at the clear work of God, at the fulfilling of two out of the three messianic miracles and say, this is of Satan. That response of the Pharisees leads to our next verses, which is a monumental topic. It's certainly worthy of a sermon itself at some point. Now, before we look at Jesus' application or the consequence of what the Pharisees have just said, I think some would maul me after the service if I didn't tell you what the third miracle was. We've only covered two Messianic miracles at this point. Well, if we were to actually mull it over in our mind, think over some of the more irrational actions of the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you could likely come up with the third messianic miracle. What miracle sent them into a real tizzy? What miracle caused them to get angry, to question and to re-question, to call in and even interrogate the parents and the recipients of this miracle? It was the healing of the man born blind. The key here is born blind. Now there were recordings up to this point of people being healed who became blind, but that was not the standard for the messianic miracle. This man must be born blind. And the why of this is more than we can cover today, but it essentially had to do with some errant pharisaical theology about good versus evil in the womb and this supposed sin within the womb that caused him to be born blind. Remember Jesus' disciples asking him who sinned, him or his parents or someone else, that he was born blind? Well, how could he be the one to have sinned before he was even born? But that's the errant theology they were talking about. The supposed good versus evil battle that happened in the womb. Well, Jesus corrects their theology. And what does he say? No one sinned. This man was born blind. Why? That the work of God may be revealed. He was born this way from the foundation of the earth that I might perform this messianic miracle. It's all part of the plan. If a man was simply healed who had become blind, you would not see the fuss. But because a man was healed who was born blind, we have them all in a tizzy. Remember the story with this man born blind. Who did this to you? They asked him. Give God the glory. You're lying. Get your parents in here. Was he really born blind? Yeah, he was really born blind. His parents said, get that guy back in here. Tell us again what happened. Hey, look, I told you. I can tell you again if you want to, but according to your own theology and teaching, only the Messiah can do what was just done to me. Do you want to be his disciples as well? And that got them pretty mad at this point, didn't it? They now have a massive, massive problem because we now have all three messianic miracles performed. This guy has to go. Technically, some classify the raising of Lazarus as a fourth messianic miracle as well and you could the jews taught that the spirit hovered over the body for three days before going to sheol or to hades that's why jesus waited what four days 
to raise Lazarus from the dead. So they couldn't claim that Lazarus was merely resuscitated, that he was well and truly dead. Isn't that interesting when we're considering God's timing in our lives? When the Mary and Martha wept that Jesus didn't come sooner. He had a reason. He had a reason. Some label that a messianic miracle as well, but Jesus was hitting them at all points. He was using their own theology, whether it was errant or correct, to show with unmistakable blazing truth who he was. Well, where does that leave us? What happens when you have such unmistakable, verifiable, in-your-face proof on every count, at every turn, that I am Messiah, and you not only reject it, but you tell me that it's demonic, that it's counterfeit? What happens to those who know the truth and reject it. Well that puts you in a terrifying position. The most terrifying position. As we'll see in our text. Mark 3, 28 through 30 I'll read them as one. Truly I say to you. All sins shall be forgiven. The sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes. Against the Holy Spirit. Never has forgiveness. But is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. But what are we talking about here? This is what you might know as the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. Now, I don't exaggerate when I say we could we could write an entire book on the truths and the implications of these verses. They're wide reaching and they're loaded with theology. But to address this, we need to separate this into two spheres. We need to look at what this means to the Pharisees here and now. And what this means for us today. I've been asked, perhaps you have as well, or maybe you've wondered, have I committed the unpardonable sin? This is a concern some people have. Well, before diving in, let me put your mind at ease very simply. If you are worried that you have committed the unpardonable sin, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Simple. We'll explain that as we dive in. First, what is the unpardonable sin as it relates to the Pharisees here? Jesus starts out, verse 28, saying, truly, truly. Anytime you see that, take note. This is a declarative, authoritative sentence, meaning I'm not shooting the breeze here. God speaks. Truly, I say to you, take this to the bank. Verse 28, there is no sin or blasphemy that cannot be forgiven. Thieves, liars, criminals, Satan worshipers, bring them on. I save them all. What a beautiful promise tucked in to this scathing rebuke. There is no sin or blasphemy that cannot be forgiven. I I need to read that again. There is no sin or blasphemy that cannot be forgiven. Oh, pastor, you have no idea what I've done. Oh, well, there's no sin or blasphemy that cannot be forgiven. How many are slow to come to the cross because of what they've done? How many think their sin is too great? How many think they need to clean themselves up first before coming to church? That's a lie. That's a lie. This is the truth. There is no sin or blasphemy that cannot be forgiven. The more horrendous the sin, the more beautiful the cross. If the cross cannot save the most foul and despicable of sinners, then it's worthless and we can all just go home. The gospel is everything. Or it's nothing. So bring your sin-stained garments. They'll be made white as snow. But this verse, 29, 
the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable, literally unforgivable. Again, two spheres to look at that for the Pharisees and that for Lanesville 2021. So as we've been putting in in context our entire message, Jesus, from the time he came on the scene, has performed every messianic miracle, not just your garden variety miracles. He has clearly demonstrated in word and in deed that he is the Christ. His speech has been without fault. His actions clear for all to see their investigation phase. Not a single thing would have been missed by these Pharisees. They saw it all right in front of them in high definition color. In other words, not a single excuse. This was willful, stubborn, defiant refusal to see who Jesus was. They knew in their hearts who Jesus was. They saw the fulfilled prophecies. This was not veiled. This was on display for all to see. And they pointed their finger and said, this is of Satan. You are of Satan. You're doing this by the power of Satan. They weren't ignorant. Listen to this in Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. How will we escape? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. How will we escape? How will we be forgiven? The author is saying you can't. It's rhetorical. It was all confirmed right in front of you in signs and wonders and miracles and gifts, but you've neglected it. You've refused it. And in this case, you've gone so far as to attribute this work to Satan. You will not escape this. Now, this particular sphere of the unforgivable sin with the Pharisees would not be possible for someone to commit today. Very simply, Jesus is not on the earth. So he, you can't see him perform a miracle in front of your eyes and say that's from Satan. So in that sense, this is a unique infraction that only this group could have committed. But you're not off the hook that easy. There's another sphere for Lanesville 2021. What is the unforgivable sin today? For this, we go back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again. It is impossible to renew them again in repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Well, what are we talking about here? Well, contrary to popular belief, we're not talking about those who are believers and fall away or lose their salvation. That is not possible. We see two words used here to describe people enlightened and that they've tasted. Neither of those are words used to describe salvation or the salvation experience anywhere in Scripture. Someone who is enlightened has been intellectually enlightened. They've been intellectually stimulated. This is interesting to me. Interesting. Those who have tasted have merely tasted. They have not consumed. Can you taste something without embracing it, without eating it and enjoying it? 
Can you? Sure you can. You can do that. No, these are those who have been fully exposed to the gospel. They have been fully immersed, intellectually educated in the things of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. And yet this light that has been shown on them will be the very thing that will judge them. The unforgivable sin today is a continued, hardened unbelief, having had ample opportunity to turn. Instead, they plug their ears. They plug their ears and they cover their eyes and they say, I can't hear you. I can't see you. And why is that unforgivable? Because forgiveness is not possible for the person who willfully rejects Christ. It is impossible. It has been well said that the lost cannot come because they will not come. It is their willful disobedience that hinders them from coming to Christ. They cannot come because they will not come. And we can see now, as we said at the beginning, that if you're worried, if you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. This is willful rebellion, continued unbelief in the face of overwhelming opportunity and evidence. Jesus says that cannot be forgiven. And indeed, it cannot. Those who come to Christ must come to him as he is. Not how they fashion him to be, making an idol to serve. He is the Lord of glory, who is merciful and compassionate. Again, Hebrews, and it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you will not come, you cannot come. No one here this morning or watching online need be guilty of the unpardonable sin. We look to Christ, who is not delusional, He is not demonic or a liar. He is divine. He is Lord. If you've not surrendered in repentance and faith, today is the acceptable day of salvation. Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Remove your fingers from your ears. Uncover your eyes and look up. He will save all who come to him. For those who love Christ this morning, who have been captured by his grace, who have been made whole by his love, you need not fear having committed the unpardonable sin. By his grace, he has made you alive again in him. He's taken your heart of stone. He's given you a heart of flesh. And that indeed is good news. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have great and precious promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that while we were enemies in our minds and wicked works, that while we had no thought of you, you loved us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly, the the righteous for the unrighteous. Lord, this is good news. Refresh and remind us, Lord, of all that you have done. Give us grace this week in Jesus' name. Amen.